All over the world today, people celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For some, it's the customary thing to do once a year. But in a world that denies miracles, what if this day is nothing more than an exercise in feel-goodism, like a eulogy at a funeral, or like a Hallmark movie? Could it be that the whole notion of a resurrection, that of Jesus Christ or of anyone else, is just too good to be true? We would do well to remember, first of all, in answering that question, that the people of God have firmly held to the reality of the resurrection throughout the centuries. Job talks about it, as does David and Isaiah and Daniel and Jesus Himself and His apostles. They all teach that the resurrection from the dead is for real. Now, some argue that raising someone from the dead just can't happen, and that's true, except when it happens, like the son of the widow at Zarephath, or the son of the Shunammite woman, or the son of the widow at Nain, or Lazarus, or Christ Himself, or Dorcas, or Eutychus. All of these, we have eyewitness testimony to genuine resurrections recorded in both the Old and New Testaments. This morning, we want to look at the account of the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb not long before He Himself rose from the dead. And in so doing, Jesus teaches us a great deal about what God thinks of death and of sorrow and what He's doing to conquer both. So this morning, I draw your attention to John chapter 11, verses 32 through 53, if you'll follow with me as I read. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. We're obviously dropping into the middle of the story here. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how He loved Him. But some of them said, Could not He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that You sent me. When He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him 
and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Three truths we want to look at from this passage this morning. First, we see great love from the Savior, loving sympathy for human suffering, verses 32 to 37. In verses 38 to 44, we will witness great power, authoritative power over death. And finally, in verses 45 to 53, great sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice for human rescue. Let's consider this first truth from verses 32 to 37, and that is that Jesus has great love for us, a loving sympathy for human suffering. In verse 32, I want to remind you of of what was in our text. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Mary's words to Jesus actually echo what her sister Martha had already said to him earlier in verse 21. We didn't read that today. Both Mary and Martha have full confidence in Jesus' power to heal. He's demonstrated that over and over again throughout his three years of public ministry. So why did he not come in time to heal Lazarus before he died from his illness? If you read the beginning of the chapter, he learned of Lazarus' illness before he died. He could have come, but he didn't. The question shows up again in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I mean, this is the question. In our suffering and in our grief, is this not the nagging question? If God has the power to heal, if God has the power to intervene so that we don't have to go through the pain and sorrow, why doesn't He? It raises the question whether He even cares. These verses address that core question that I think every human being asks when they're going through the middle of a terrible time, the loss of a loved one, great grief. These verses demonstrate that Christ's great love for us and His deep sympathy for us as we go through the pain. 
You notice verse 33 said, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The words deeply moved, the language that that John uses actually carries the idea of being indignant. And that's that's a little bit perplexing. We're not sure why that would be. Greatly troubled conveys the great emotion, the point of shaking uncontrollably. So Jesus is responding in, a, in an emotional way, in an indignant way, to what he's seeing. Well, these are common human responses to great sorrow and suffering, are they not? This response to human suffering is also the way Jesus responded to it. He consistently shows deep compassion for broken and needy people. This is his character. This is his M.O., and we find it recorded over and over again. For instance, in Matthew 9, 36, Matthew describes he saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was not the kind of person that just walks by suffering people and, and turns a blind eye to it. God is not that kind of God either, for Jesus reflected who God is. Jesus' response was this way even to those who rejected him. When he saw the suffering that they would endure, Luke 19, when he drew near and saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, for now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, many of the people in Jerusalem, the leaders in Jerusalem, rejected Jesus Christ. And yet, even though the justice that fell on them displayed the wrath of God, still the heart of God toward them was one of sorrow and weeping at the the pain and the suffering that they would endure. Even to this day, Jesus sympathizes with those who belong to him. We learned in our study of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It does us well to remember that As God the Son in human flesh, Jesus revealed to us God's heart toward us. His response to human suffering is God's response. So why this description that he was indignant? In what way and at what was he angry? God loves his creation. God loves human beings whom he made in his image and blessed to fill and to exercise dominion over the earth. So death and all the suffering leading to it actually attacks human beings made in God's image, reduces them to dust. Sin's sad and sordid scourge on humanity is the suffering and the death that we endure. We were made for more. And we feel this when a loved one is ripped from our side, or when we are dealt a lethal blow that knocks us down from perfect health to wasting away with cancer or some other disease, we feel 
the outrage of it. We were created as living beings. So death violates and, and mocks our dignity and our worth. We see strong, healthy individuals that we loved and who served many. We see them reduced to a bed, wasting away. There's something that's not right about that. There's something that evokes from us a sense of, of anger and indignity. The Apostle Paul calls death the last enemy that Christ will, restore, will destroy. So, Jesus is also indignant with the humiliation and the pain and the sorrow that sin and death have brought upon the human race. He's indignant with Satan, the serpent who deceived and seduced our first parents, Adam and Eve. Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He murdered, as it were, the human race. He deceived us. Jesus knew better than any other human being ever has how devastating and how a diabolical sin's curse actually is. Because Jesus understood perfection. Jesus understood the way it was before it was marred. Jesus knew what we were created to be. Jesus knew the blessing that sin has ripped away from human beings made in God's image. He came to earth as the God-man to destroy the works of the devil, to cancel the curse of sin, to break the bars of death, and to bring eternal life to us. Death is our enemy, and Jesus is our friend. And as such, he is death's enemy and death's conqueror. He was indignant. He was shattered in spirit. Jesus neared the tomb. He wept. See how he loved him, some explained. And we know Jesus loved Lazarus. It was evident. He loved Martha and he loved Mary. He wept for them. He wept for us. He wept for the plight of all humanity. So we know that Jesus cares. In fact, there's, there's hardly a person that has any passing notion of who Jesus was that doesn't view him as a caring kind of person, a person with compassion. So that, that sends us back to the first question, then why did he wait? Why did he wait in the case of Lazarus? John 11, 5 and 6 make clear that he waited for a purpose. We're told, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. His waiting, his delay was a delay of love. Well, that raises a bigger question. Who loves like this? Why would you delay? I mean, would you delay if you knew you could help somebody? Would you wait? What was his purpose in waiting? Verse 4, Jesus reveals the answer. When Jesus heard it, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So, so death was not going to be the end game. To us, death always seems like the end game. You have a birth, and you have a death. You have a celebration of a new one born. You have a funeral of one that's gone. 
But the funeral wasn't the end. This was to the glory of God. It would have been great for Jesus to heal Lazarus, but it was even better for Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and all of us needed to know that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. If He does not have the power to raise the dead, then the good news, the gospel, is no longer good. Eternal life couldn't be eternal. Our forever inheritance would remain forever out of reach if death can bar us from experiencing it. We live in a world ravaged by suffering and death, and when these strike close to us, we feel the agony of it. And like Mary and Martha and their friends, we ask naturally why the Lord doesn't intervene. We question not so much His power, but His heart toward us. You may be in the throes of that soul battle this very day. In fact, in a group like this, any number of you are wrestling with these very kinds of questions. You may have been there for a long time. Where is God when you need Him most? Well, our text this morning sheds light on His method and on His purpose and on His heart. We desire healing. He promises resurrection. We pray for short-term deliverances while He is working at eternal rescue. His delays are delays of love. He is mighty to save. Will you not trust His love? That when He is, that what He is doing in your life is part of a greater plan for your greater good. That what He is doing in the history of humanity to this very hour, a, a world torn by war and ravaged with suffering, pop-marked with graves, that what He is doing right now is part of a larger plan that will be to our good and His glory. He has great love. But He also has great power, the authoritative power over death itself. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for He has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Take away the stone. If Jesus has the power to raise the dead, why doesn't He move the stone Himself? All kinds of questions. When you read the Scripture, you know, ask yourself questions like, why? Why would He do it this way? I believe it's a call for faith from His followers. Clearly, they're just moving the stone wouldn't raise the dead. I mean, you can open up all the graves you want, and it doesn't raise the dead. But to move the stone showed faith that Jesus is going to raise the dead. 
Else why would you open up the cave where the dead lay? Martha objects, because by this time the body of Lazarus would have started to decay. What is Jesus' response? In verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believed. So he's calling for an act of faith, an act of believing in him to move the stone. Now, here's the earlier conversation with Martha, because he says, did not I tell you this? In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. We've heard that question. That's a question that dominates much of the story. It's a question that dominates our own hearts. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Remember, we talked about the fact that throughout the Scriptures, this is, this is what God's people held to. This is what God had revealed to them. So that she believed in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In other words, do you believe I'm the one who is going to bring this resurrection to pass? So it's one thing to believe in this generic resurrection coming in the future, but who's going to actually make it happen? How can it happen for those that are sinners and therefore deserving of death? According to the decree of God, how can it happen that they can be freed from that curse? They can be freed from that penalty of their sins since we're all sinners. How can I possibly be free? There has to be somebody who will open the door. There has to be somebody who can beat both my sin and my death and can release me from the power of both. Martha already believes in the final resurrection. The amount of time a person has been dead then makes no difference. Four days, four years, four centuries, four millennia. It doesn't matter. If God can raise the dead, He can raise the dead. And the final resurrection indicates that it doesn't matter if you've been there for, for 10,000 years. God can still pull all that dust back together. He knows exactly where you are, and He gives life to what was dead. Even now... Martha says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And Jesus reveals to us in our text this morning that he was in constant communion with the Father. And whatever he did, this is what we would expect among the the members of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, that the Son would be in communication with the Father. So we read in verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes, up his eyes, and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. You heard me, and you always do. The bystanders needed to know that God the Father listens to God the Son when he prays, as do we. Even now, we're told in the New Testament, Jesus intercedes for his people. Jesus' intercession is the reason that sinners like you and me can actually be rescued from the penalty that we deserve. 
In Romans 8, 34, Paul asks, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, the place of power, who indeed is interceding for us. Look, if you and I ever make it to heaven, if you and I ever make it into the eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, it won't be on our merits. We know that full well. When we're brutally honest with who we actually are and how we actually think and what we actually desire, we know we don't deserve to step foot into heaven. We don't deserve to live forever in our new heaven, new earth. I mean, only an arrogant person would think that he deserved that. Somebody has to make a way. And Jesus is making a way. He is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. At this moment, Jesus intercedes for every one of His people. Every person who's placed faith in Him, He knows Him by name, and He pleads for them before the Father's throne. He makes a way when there was no way. One thing God the Father has granted to Jesus, God the Son, is the power and authority to raise people from the dead. Listen to Christ's own words in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And Jesus demonstrates that those weren't empty words. He demonstrates here that he has this level of authority. In verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The God of the Bible is infinite in His power. Doing the impossible is His stock and trade. I mean, He starts the whole universe that way. He speaks, and the universe comes into being. He speaks, and the dead come back to life. His promises, His words guarantee the outcome. They are self-fulfilling. You can trust a God like that. He is great in His love. And he's also great in his power, great enough to give you life because he's the source of life, great enough to tear you loose from the jaws of death and recover you from the dust of the grave. If you're relying on such a Savior, how can you possibly lose? But if you refuse to trust him, how can you possibly win? What's your alternative? Who else can save you? 
Or do you think that salvation is just a pipe dream? Well, it is, unless you're trusting in Jesus. And that leads us to the third great truth of this passage, and that is great sacrifice. Jesus is mighty to say because He has made substitutionary sacrifice for human rescue. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So not everyone who saw what Jesus did believed in Him. They had other priorities. And these priorities become clear in the verses that follow. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Pharisees freely admit that Jesus was performing many signs. A sign is a miracle with a message. The Pharisees believed in miracles, including the resurrection, but they refused to believe in Jesus and were alarmed that so many were believing in Him. And so they decided to join forces with the chief priests to deal with the problem. Now, what's, what's ironic about this, what's strange about this, is that at this time, the Sadducees, a different cult, a different group from the Pharisees, dominated the priesthood. They also dominated the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Theirs was the power of money and political influence but they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe in miracles. So here they are faced with one. And the question is not, how do we prove that there wasn't one, because that would be impossible to do. There are too many eyewitnesses. The question is, how do you, how do you scale back the fallout from it? Jesus, in talking with the Sadducees earlier in the week, before the week of his own crucifixion, answered them when they tried to give him a riddle, you are wrong about the resurrection because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. If you believe the Scriptures and if you believe in the power of God, then you have to believe in a resurrection. Otherwise, you've got to throw out both. So the Sadducees' low view of Scripture and of God's power usually pitted them against the Pharisees. But here they're united in their hatred of Jesus because, why? He threatened their high standing. That Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead was less important to them than protecting their own power and influence. And what a warning. Because of their high view of Scripture, many of the Pharisees served as scribes. Their vocation was to copy the Scriptures meticulously, and, and to teach them. So here you have the guardians of the Word of God, the Pharisees, and the guardians of worship, the worship of God, the priests, dominated by Sadducees, who care more about their position and power than they do about God Himself. Because when He shows up in the flesh and disrupts their lives, it matters not that He raises the dead. He must die. Our sinful human nature hates a God who disrupts our little kingdoms, no matter how loving and strong He may be. And these men, like many others, would rather play religion 
then engage in the real thing if it means having to bow the knee to a sovereign God. There are lots of people that play religion. There are lots of people that make religion a business. There's a smaller number that bow the knee. They feared that if Jesus gained a greater following, Rome would strip them of their places of power and would subjugate their nation. So they conspired to kill Jesus, not for any evil that he had done, but for all the good that he had done, including raising the dead. As I read this, several ironies leap to my mind. First, how do you keep a person dead who has the power over death? I mean, like, how are you going to win that game? Secondly, killing Jesus, if you know the history, didn't rescue them from Rome. They were already under Rome's domination. And in 70 AD, Rome leveled Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground. There was no more temple. There was no more priesthood. There was no more power. There was no more prestige. It was all gone. The idols they murdered Jesus to protect were smashed. Whatever you love so much that it keeps you from trusting in Jesus, you're going to lose anyway. But God gives those who will put their faith in Jesus an everlasting inheritance that can never be taken away. So do the math. When you refuse Jesus... You lose it all. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, he has quite a history, almost a godfather kind of figure. One of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Political expediency and self-interest drive Caiaphas to call for murdering Jesus. But God is so much in control that he uses even his enemies to get his will done. The wicked mouth and heart of Caiaphas becomes an instrument in the hand of God to prophesy the gospel. They conspire to execute the only completely innocent human being who ever lived, Jesus Christ, the God-man. But in so doing, they fulfilled God's plan of redemption through the spotless Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world through the sacrifice of himself. All of history had pointed to this moment. All the sacrifices on Jewish altars slain had pointed to this Lamb of God. All God's promises, beginning in the garden, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David, all of God's promises of the coming Messiah, the Savior King, were coming to pass. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, God would gather into one people all the children of God. P 
people receiving life from him, wherever they are scattered and in whatever generation they live. Peter explained it this way in Acts 2 as he looked into the eyeballs of some of the very men that were part of this conspiracy. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He set the boundaries ahead of time. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the panic of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And after Jesus rose from the dead... He taught his disciples for 40 days, and he left them with this final word, Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, make followers, make learners of all nations, all ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, all the days, to the end, the consummation, the goal of the age. To this day, Jesus has his enemies safely removed from the eyewitnesses by 2,000 years. Those who count themselves sophisticated and wise declared the accounts of his miracles and his resurrection nothing but lies. His contemporaries didn't have that luxury. Their hatred was just out in the open for everyone to see. Their hatred for Jesus bypassed the evidence. They hated him because they did not want to lose control. And that's still the real reason people reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. But their rejection can't negate what God has done and is doing through Jesus. He is calling a people for his own. He is calling together into one all the children of God. And those who choose to follow idols will find that their idols of heart will prove to be nothing but transient dreams. If you've not yet transferred your trust, putting it into Jesus to save you from your sin and your suffering and your death, what is keeping you from doing so? Whatever it is, I can tell you it's not worth it. It's just an idol that you're going to lose. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus is mighty to save. Great in his love, great in his power, great in his sacrifice. And, and before you lies an eternity of regret and suffering under God's wrath or an eternity of gratitude and joy in a universe washed clean from sin and death. Which do you want? John tells us toward the end of his gospel why he wrote it. He says, now Jesus did many other signs besides the seven miracles that John records, the seventh being Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one God has promised all along, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name.
This is why we looked at this this morning. Life. Life. The canceling, the reversal of every funeral. The end of suffering and death. To the glory of God, through the man of his own choosing, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Messiah, who displayed great love. He has loving sympathy for our human suffering. He has displayed great power. He has authoritative power over death, and he has made a great sacrifice, substituting in our place in order to rescue us. Will you not trust him? If you haven't done so yet, why not today? Why not today? I want to give you a moment before I pray just to talk to the Lord. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And, and if God has been speaking to you through his word, you know it. And if you have sensed his call, will you not talk to God? Will you not talk to God silently and ask him to save you? To cleanse you from your sin and rescue you from death and give you eternal life? God says, Jesus says that he that comes to me I will not cast out. He won't ever cast you out. He gives to them eternal life. God, you know our hearts, you know our lives, you know our struggles, you know what stands in the way of our trusting in you. And Lord, I pray that you would strip away the idols, you would strip away the barriers, you'd strip away the fog, and help us see Jesus for who he is, and help us put our faith in him. Lord, we thank you for his mighty love, his mighty power, his mighty sacrifice. We pray for his glory that you would increase our faith and that even this day there would be ones born new into the kingdom of God. For it's in Christ's name we pray.